Welcome again to the Service Design Podcast. I'm Jeroen de Puyt. And I'm Laurent Somers. And today we're having a chat with Christopher Kelly Frere and Sydney Johnson, two designers from Canada-based studio J5 Design. Christopher is an architect by training and a systemic designer by practice, and with a magic ability to inspire people to dream about a better future, he believes great design grows from the community, and his job is to level the playing field for everyone to participate in shaping this world around him. And Sydney is a seasoned service designer and puts authenticity, purpose and equality at the heart of her design practice. She's a passionate champion of service design and gives her time also to educate others of its value. And both play their role in J5 Design, a design studio that offers strategic design services to organizations that want to improve the experience of their users. Welcome both of you. Welcome, Christopher. Welcome, Sydney. Thanks so much for having us. (laughs) Sorry. No, it's fun to hear all of our voices. So great to see you. So good to see you. I I, I was just going to say, like, it's a Monday evening for us. It's an early morning for you in Canada. How are you today? I'm... We... We... I... We're in two different rooms, but in the same city. We're doing really well. (laughs) Uh, Maybe to paint the picture, Calgary, where we are in Alberta, in Canada... Um, is not too far, not too near from the Rockies, um, the traditional territories of the Treaty Seven Nations, the Siksika, the Pakani, the Gainai, the Tsina, Stony Dakota, including Wesley Chiniki and Bearspaw, as well as those who call Metis Region Three home. And the temperatures here swing. <laughs> I'm on my way well, already. the temperatures here swing wildly. So it went from zero snow to now. I don't know how much do we have, Sid. It's like. Minus 20 out? Oh, uh, quite a bit. But like I said, right before we, we you hopped on, Christopher, is also it's a super sunny day. So we've got, you know, uh, uh, I don't know what it would be in centimeters because, of course, in Canada, we use both metric and imperial, depending on what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> our, lis- our listeners are, are okay, uh, smart okay, enough. Okay, perfect. Just so there's the like local, a uh, couple of still, but it's sunny, it's sunny and it's just a beautiful Monday here. Wonderful. Yeah, you guys seem uh, seem good, and you got some uh, some sun sun faces, so that's also uh, nice for our listeners. We can see them on the screen uh, because, yeah, of course, we are still in Belgium, um, but um, yeah, ob- obviously envious of the good weather there in uh, in Canada. Um, welcome to our uh, to our yeah service design uh, podcast, um, and I just wanted to to ask you as a, a start. Um, you're here because you won the service design global award uh, last year, 2022, with your project Braver Training Grounds for Red Deer Housing. Uh, and maybe before you tell us why you won, I'm very, very curious if you could introduce um, Red Deer Housing and uh, the challenge and the project there. Could you walk us a little bit uh, through their, uh, their, their, yeah, their process and why they, they came to you? Yeah, if, if that's all right, Sid, I, I, I'll, I'll uh, kind of paint that picture. So um, the Red Deer Housing Authority, and they're in the middle actually of changing their name, is a small housing provider in a mid-sized city in the center of our province called Alberta. So it's about 500,000 people in that city. It's in these sort of rolling green hills and deep river valley of the, the Alberta farmland, pasture land. And it's an incredibly complex and diverse place. There are more than 400 housing providers vying to serve that half million people. And they are fragmented and segmented and 
often competing for different resources to try to serve the most vulnerable populations. And Red Deer Housing Authority is embarking on some pretty systemic and aspirational transformation. They only serve, they only operate about 300 units right now, but they want to make a bigger impact. And they thought that one of the key ways that they could start to do that was by taking a pause and understanding who are the people that they're serving and what do they actually need. And they had heard about J5 design uh, through some work that we had done in another city called Edmonton. And uh, as Franklin, uh, their CEO, said uh, the other day, we wanted to kick the tires on service design and on what you do. And so we framed up a project to help them understand their users. And you know, we can talk a little bit more about this, but it ended up taking a really interesting shape in the form of a training program. And I think it really changed everyone's minds about what it means to get out into the field and to get our hands dirty. I'm very curious to hear how that training program took shape because it started from understanding their users, their customers, their clients to a training program that you gave. And that's actually gave you the awards. It's, it's in the name, of course, Braver Training Grounds. Um, could you perhaps tell us um, what's, um, what made them braver? <laughs> what's, <laughs> what, was, um, what was the braveness they required? <laughs> well, so a, a little bit of context that might be helpful. One of the other ingredients in this training ground, this Braver Training Ground, was trying to find out how to resource, how to find the money for a service design project. And as a housing provider, they do not have a lot of money kicking around to evolve and transform their services, Mm. but they had a little bit. And we had done a project um, where we had found a way to access a government grant where you could turn um, a small amount of money from the organization to a uh, a much larger budget, almost tripled the budget. And uh, by turning it into a training program. And so we reformatted a traditional service design approach into a walk-along, learn-by-doing experience for a core group of their staff and a core group of J5 staff. And Sid, I don't know what you, what maybe you could speak to this word of like, what made it braver? (laughs) Um, Yeah, I mean, I think just, backtracking a moment, it's perhaps helpful context to understand that at J5, this is not our first endeavor into a training program. Uh, We have had multiple over the years and some running parallel and ongoing right now with different clients because we really believe in not just doing the design ourselves, but empowering community and empowering others and bringing different people into the world of service design um, in, in a multitude of ways. And so when I think about the braver that's required, it's probably on the client side and on the employee side who are in this organization to say, yeah, I don't really know what this is. It's maybe a little intimidating to me. It's creative and maybe I don't consider myself creative, uh, but I'm going to lean in and I'm going to trust that this training program and the people who are making it have my back and are going to see me through this work. And that open-mindedness is actually what makes a project like this work. Because if you don't have people bought into Mm -hmm. 
the possibilities, then you're never going to, it doesn't matter how good the program is, you're not going to be successful. And so um, to me, I don't know if you would agree, Christopher, I'm sure there's other pieces too, but the clients are the brave ones here. Yeah, I you nail on the head. And, <laughs> and I think it's that that idea too of as we as we strip away, as we let go of some of our assumptions about who's a designer, what does design have to look like? That's all. That also takes bravery, right? To to on the side of um, you know a firm to say like maybe we're not going to lead. What does that look like? We're going to do with instead of for, and um, to be open to something different. And even though you uh, actually created a training program for them, I think because of the discovery phase, the typical service design approach, you probably did not yet know what trainings you would end up yeah sharing with them, and what what they would get as a training result from that uh, project. So can you maybe walk us through a little bit how you happened on this uh, discovery of what training they needed and what needs you uncovered there? Yeah. Um, so one of the things where we started was um, by saying, well, in the absence of a pattern, let's take one that we know and start with that and be open to letting it change. And so we said, we need to walk you through some of the traditional tools that maybe we would use as a service design organization to understand your users. And so we created this online learning management system that had modules that they could watch to understand human-centered design and some systems thinking and service mapping and blueprints, like all of that sort of stuff. But then we aligned that with coaching. And so their small group started to walk through the production of, we call them kind of like assumption artifacts. So who do you think your users are? Let's make those proto-personas. What journey do you think they go on? Let's make that map together. Um, you know, how are you segmenting people? Let's let's draw those assumptions out. Let, you know, what do you think the pain points are? And really sort of doing that. Like getting it all out there yeah. without interviewing, without research. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that like, so we were familiarizing them with the tools by working on the internal story they had. And then the second half is when it really came to life, when we actually like packed up cars, went to their facilities and met the people that they served. And then everything changed. And also a little bit of building the plane while flying it, right, Christopher? So there's, it's not as if we had the whole training program baked and then we were like, great, we need a training program. Here it is. And then we're going to figure out the, how the project fits into that. It was, you know, do a, make something, do a little bit of work, figure out what the next lesson is going to be, film that, uh, put it in the, in the program, respond to what the client is doing, so on and so forth. So very bespoke and built mm -hmm. out as it was going. Oh, totally. Yeah, it was like yeah. the night before. We were like, we need to set up the film studio tonight. And then, you know, our graphic <laughs> graphic design kind of wizards would be like, great, I've got the new templates ready. The things would get uploaded. And on the client side at that point, they'd be like, oh, look at this beautiful experience we're having using this learning system on the back end. Like you said, Sid, we're, you know, really looking just one or two steps ahead and trying to say that that's sometimes a strength. Sometimes I think we plan too far and we can get ourselves in trouble because it, we end up baking in all kinds of bias. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think you, you also mentioned in the beginning that for them, for the client, it was service line was kind of like a new toolbox, right? For them, it was, was all new and, and you uh, call it eloquently uh, kicking the tires, I think, in like an introduction into the, the world of service line. Like, can you 
uh, elaborate maybe a little bit on, on that? Like how uh, did that go from the beginning, uh, even before the training maybe? Just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it just, I have a lot of thoughts about this as someone who, you know, spent a lot of time doing service design in the UK before moving back to Canada. And I think important context for uh, everyone listening is that service design is still an emerging practice in Canada and also in Western Canada. And so, you know, it's, I, you could argue it's still an emerging practice everywhere, but I think that there is outside of the circles that we move in a lot of knowledge that still needs to be built. And that's why I think an organization like ours does have so many training programs and does have that philosophy around um, education because a lot of it is educating the clients that we even exist as a service design even exists as a thing that you can do. And so that is, you know, one of the sort of ingredients that makes a collaboration like this come together is probably that before they heard of us, and I don't know for sure, they may not have ever heard of service design or known that that was an industry or a, or a type of help that they could get. How did they come to you uh, in that in that way? Um, were they already searching for service design there as a practice or was it more during talks, during conversations and, and building that bond that they were like, okay, we want to invest more and more of our resources here? Well, so one of the things that happened, and I think this speaks to one of the challenges for the service design field in general, is like, how do we talk outside our normal circles? And some members of the J5 team had been presenting at a housing symposium to share some practices that they thought could be helpful, but also to get to know people. For us, like really, we really believe in relationship and the power of relationship to create um, the fertile ground that we need to grow good work in. And so um, they had heard some of our team speak at their at this conference. Uh, some of their, uh, another fur, another uh, provider in a different city had tried J5 out. And then that kind of led them to, that kind of, that led them to come to us. And I do think about that a lot when I think about SDN and I think about the work we're all trying to do, which is like, how do we get these conversations to happen in different places and also show up in a way where we are not the experts. You know, a service design will save the world. It's like, no, <laughs> working together will save the world. And that might be one of the tools inside of it. And that's actually uh, one one of the interesting parts that you shared is um, you gave training com yeah, combined with coaching them as well. So we had this, uh, this video courses online and then some uh, actual coaching. Um, can you maybe give us an example one of the assignments they actually had to do in the fields maybe or um, yeah what, what's one of the these things they worked on yeah you know like I said one of the places that we started was with what are the assumptions you have and so thinking like we use the term proto persona in this project um, where you know the group took a small course on empathizing and understanding the people that you serve and talked about how personas are artifacts that can can archetypes that can show off our you know what we think is true and then this little core group of staff from um from red deer housing got together and sketched out a framework for how they thought about their clients right now so they ended up creating um a, 
a matrix that had a couple different tensions in terms of uh, sort of uh, spectrums along which some of their customers landed and then gave those people um, names and described their needs. And then they sat down and were like, well, do we actually have anyone we could talk to who fits into these categories? And that's when it got really interesting because they started trying to think about their client lists and being like, who, who could represent part of this persona? And um, that would happen with us together kind of in the coaching sessions, but then it was up to them to go out and talk to them in future future modules. That's awesome. Yeah, it's super cool that you actually got to this, this reflex as well of finding users that are representative of the dimensions they need to, to fill in the knowledge and, and to test the assumptions. Do you, do you have yes, a striking insights, something that they came up with by, by doing these interviews, something that tested their assumptions? <laughs> that none of the groups that they thought they served actually exist in those ways? That's really neat. <laughs> um, you, you know, I think one of the, I, I think back quite a bit to some of the conversations that happened um, between uh, one of their, one of their uh, staff who really mostly worked in the back. She's in the finance department and um, had never been to the buildings that they operated. And on one of our um, site visit days where we loaded a car up with donuts and coffee, packed up some friendly signs that said, hey, we're not selling anything. We would love to talk to you about what it's like to live here. Um, and no one's in trouble. Like sometimes you have to have sort of mention those those things. Uh, this uh, I'm taking notes already. Bring donuts, <laughs> coffee yeah, as well. Donuts, yeah. coffee, <laughs> friendly signs, a place to sit, a th mm -hmm. some materials for kids to color so that people can hang out a little bit longer. This uh, one of their staff members mentioned afterwards that she was never going to look at her spreadsheet um, again in terms of, uh, the, in the same way again in terms of the expenditures that they have because she might have made assumptions before about oh hey well why do we need to replace the fencing in that garden on this house this is about housing and now she knows that there are kids in that building and that the fence keeps them from running into the road or hey why is that laundry machine getting broken so often we should we've got to like lock it down and use you know, more restriction and in actually finding out and talking to the people in that building, she realized that, oh, hey, it's getting broken because people lose the, the, the coins to the room and they, they can't leave the building because they're doing childcare. And, you know, anyway, I'm not really telling that story beautifully, but she said, you know, I've only used to look at these as abstract numbers. And now instead, I see them as real people and real problems. And that's changing how I prioritize things. And that became one of these links between a service design exercise and more strategic thinking. And I think that's really the role of service design in so many spaces is to really connect to that human side of things. So in this case, you're connecting directly the client to the human in their work, which was maybe missing before. Um, well, the human was always, always there, but the, the mindset of, hey, there's people behind the spreadsheet is what's missing. And maybe that's, you know, one of the most important parts is not only connecting to the people who are the users, but also the humanity within all of us. Because even if she doesn't, uh, you know, the, the woman in Christopher's story doesn't go out with donuts and coffee every weekend, she has that experience to carry her through the rest of her days coming into work. Yeah, that's it's, it's so inspiring, and I, I'm just thinking from my point of view as well. Like, how how did you guys convince that person or even the um, the, the entire organizations to 
to to do stuff like that um, because that's all, all, always something that I sometimes we manage sometimes we don't to really convince them as, as well of the um, uh, going out of their comfort zone going outside meeting the the people who we are doing uh, the work for um, do you guys have some uh, some great tip <laughs> there that I can take yeah I mean it's it's so the context for each client is so so different I think I mentioned at the top that this client particularly already had some some grounding mindset that was uh, kind of ripe for that type of exposure so they were already open to the process and open to in the fact that they were opening to learning about service design in and of itself but uh, and I'm sure Christopher you might want to speak to the same thing but there is also really strong and visionary leadership in this organization um, and I think that that sets the tone and gives permission for everyone else else within that organization to participate in a different way and think differently in a different way is, you know, what, what is the leadership like? What is the hierarchy if there is one and how does that um, create barriers or remove barriers for different people in the organization to engage in this way? I'm curious about that leadership mm -hmm. indeed, because you mentioned it from the start that it's not just the workers that were involved, but also management and programmers targeting all layers of the organization. So yeah, how, how did leader, leadership react to the insights and the, yeah, and this project? Well, so in, in this context, Red Deer Housing is really led by um, both a, a vision, a, a board that is realizing it needs to be visionary and stepping into that and a transformative leader who has experience in a number of different systems, whether it's working for the municipalities or the housing sector in general, and recognized that one of the things that he needed to do was retain his top performers. And so some of the folks who were invited into this training program, part of it was an employee engagement exercise to say, hey, I believe in you. I want to train you up. I want to empower you. And so that really flowed down. He also worked alongside them and so was a co-learner, which really leveled the playing field in terms of literacy of different tools and approaches. And I want to also kind of come back to your question of how do you get people, how do you get them to do that? Well, the answer is you just put it in the syllabus, <laughs> like in the structure of the course. So the course has a field trip day. So you go and do a field trip. And I think that there's a piece inside projects like this where you started off and you know you have almost no knowledge and a ton of energy. And so you run really fast and your energy kind of drops and your knowledge rises and you end up in this gap again where there's a big gap between now you know a ton and there's no energy. And that's when rhythms really come in. And so the structure of a training program becomes really helpful because you can create modules. You can sort of create these uh, MacGuffins that... that that draw you mm -hmm. one step forward. It's like a, you know, it's like a Trojan horse, a reason to do the field trip, a reason to have a synthesis day, a reason to write an analysis or to create personas. And I think sometimes mm -hmm. that's one of our, uh, an, an unspoken tool inside of design practice is, is this idea of building rhythms. And once there's a rhythm, people can find their way into it, right? It's like good jazz music. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And was it was it an always um, as well in, in in parallel? Let's say assessment and training together in the same rhythm at the same pace, or was there in the beginning more assessment and then at the end more training and coaching? Like, how did that work? How did they flow into each other? 
Uh, the training ran across the entire project and then the service design ran across the entire project. So the service design was like the homework. It was the doing and, so did, yeah, and we went okay. along with it. And so the training helped give them context, which is also kind of neat because it meant that they understood the deliverables and helped build them. So then they had ownership of them. So then they could explain them. So there was no point where, you know, the board was like, oh, what is this deliverable? It's like, actually, they had been a part of building it. So they, you know, the buy-in process, like presentations were never risky because they had actually built the content. Um, and we've been exploring this in some other projects too, Sid. I, I don't know, maybe if you want to share a story about some of that. It's like you're reading my mind because every time I'm about to jump in, you're like, hey, why don't you talk about this thing that I'm, I'm reading uh, from looking at your face? That's so funny. I was just going to say that, yeah, we have also these rhythms built into some of our other training programs as well, where we might get together uh, and do the work together and that's the training and maybe we're facilitating that or or what have you they're not always mm -hmm. an online training program sometimes they're more in-person based uh, and then we'll have a subsequent session that's like okay let's break down why we did all those things why did we do that activity why uh, is this important why is like this felt really uncomfortable uh, and we kind of pushed you to do it anyways why did we do that um, and so we'll explain everything what we did we'll we'll do like a workshop and then we'll break down the workshop and then it just unlocks different doors in people's minds to be like, oh, first of all, this is how I might apply it to other parts of my practice. I think that's something that we haven't really touched on yet is that the idea with these training programs is so that the employees in these different organizations who touch into this work can find ways to use these tools again, use these mindsets again. Uh, in other parts of their work to yeah not just yeah during yeah this exactly one. it's yeah. it's it's not something that's contained in one project it's something that we hope ripples out and continues to in in any organization that's engaging in this way mm -hmm. and you you also spoke about connections right in the in the beginning can you give me maybe an, a, a specific example of uh, something um yeah, very unique or so in the training and assessment and in the rhythm that really contributed to a meaningful connection there with the clients? Yeah, yeah. I was like, very specific is, uh, <laughs> is um, more tricky, but I think maybe going back to Christopher's earlier point about relationship building is that that can be in the syllabus too. Like that can be something that is also baked in where you're not just, starting on the first day like okay everybody service design 101 here we go let's like uh start to build out our discovery plan it's about spending time just being with each other and building time in uh you know in an in another training program i'm thinking of like we had um one day we came in and we were doing i'm not sure if everyone is familiar but the stinky fish exercise where you, which is an exercise in which you name kind of the thing that you're most afraid of uh, about engaging with the process. And that's your stinky fish. And um, a couple of our colleagues were facilitating this workshop and they, uh, you know, facilitated with the group, with our clients and had them all write down their fish on these pieces of paper. And then they put, took all the fish and put them in a, a paper on the wall that was called the chum bucket and then they passed out to everyone in the workshop little clay sharks that they had made 
that were going to eat their fish. And they had done this before the workshop. And there's just something so like lighthearted about that. And then everyone had a, a little shark that they got to pick, that they got to take away and reminder for them for the rest of the process. Uh, so that's just an example of, of relationship building in the context of a workshop that goes above and beyond just that, hey, we're going to run through this exercise and then we're going to move to the next one. It's like, okay, but how are we connecting with different people and having a laugh together? Or how are we having fun? Those things are just as important. Yeah, I, I really like it. It's very specific. <laughs> you and, asked for yeah, specific, I so I, uh, I, I came I up with one for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> I'm, I some of the, the practices we have, whether it's like building a syllabus or running a training program or even doing service design, have rhythms. And that, you know, maybe there's a way to look at those rhythms and to say, does that rhythm give places for people to jump in? Does it give you space to improvise? And I think in the, the Braver Training Grounds project, one of the spots where improvisation showed up was really in the outputs. So we did go through a process of building you know, traditional service design artifacts, but we also outputted a coffee table book full of stories about the human experience of working with that housing provider that they've now integrated into their onboarding program. So any new employee actually has to go through that. They ended up creating new job profiles uh, and have hired new staff in new roles to take it, you know, to recognize that they don't just provide housing, they also provide supports. And finally, Many of the recommendations that we we produced looked a lot more like a strategic plan than they did a service improvement plan. And so there's been an openness to that kind of hybrid output. And and you know, I don't know if that loops us back in to the to the story, but maybe that helps. Yeah, yeah, of course. And um, if I just can I can pick uh, up on the on the strategic part as well because we talked about earlier about the the project that evolved as well while doing it, um, building the, the plane while flying. Um, these strategic elements, did they, did they yeah, grow into the project as well? And how did you as um, an external service designer um, uh, tackle those? Did, did you have specific conversations with specific people within the organization? Or how did you go about doing so? Where the strategy question really came to life was in our first synthesis session. So after we had spent those days in the field with the, the folks from our the Red Deer Housing, we all got together into a room and went through that process of sense making, right? You know, swimming in the data, looking for patterns and naming them and then applying those to the challenges at hand. And in that process, we recognized that Yes, there were definitely pieces that could be mapped into, say, an improved customer experience journey, but there were also a whole cluster of things that looked uh, a whole lot like values for the organization and commitments, right? You know, things that you would want in a strategic plan. There were also pieces of information that would maybe fall into a three horizon model of near, now, next, right? So what are the things we need to deal with now? What are the, the small trends and signals of what's coming and what's way farther out? And so it was actually in that sense-making conversation. And I remember sitting in the room with um, the folks from RDHA. We had all of our materials on the walls. We were swimming in the data. We were using a combination of visual thinking and traditional uh, sense-making approaches to try to tease out those patterns and clusters. 
and also trying not to forget the human story. So the voices of the people that we had met, making sure that those were in the room, playing recordings, having photos of those people to kind of keep that container really alive. I think that's when it really became apparent that something else was in the water and something else was possible. So from this discovery phase, you not just got some insights to improve a process or a specific part, but on several layers of the organization. Um, you've mentioned the coffee table book, you've mentioned training, um, but when you talk about values, um, how did you use that outcome to, to, to do something with that in the projects? Well, yeah, I think, I, go ahead, Sid. Well, I just, I was thinking about both of those last couple of questions about building the plane while flying it and, and how you're tapping into the values and the strategic piece. And it reminds me of, you know, one of the design principles we have at J5 is working out loud and how central that is to the way that we approach this kind of work and how that opens the doors for those conversations about values or those pieces of inspiration um, that, you know, lead to the coffee table books of the world uh, in these kind of spaces, because, you know, although we are building the plane while flying it, we're not hiding that from the client. We're saying, here's like the messiness and here's the, here's how we're showing up today. And we're going to invite you into the process and not just show up with a fully polished thing. So I'm not sure that that fully answers, answers your question, Yaren, but uh, that's just what I was thinking of as, as I was hearing Christopher talk. Yeah, actually, it's, it's, it's interesting indeed that you, you didn't synthesize all the insights. I mean, you didn't just gather them from, from, from them and then process them internally and then, yeah, presented them back at, at themselves, but you actually got them to work on it together. And maybe define the patterns you're looking for on the spot with them as well. Right. Because that's something that we in project sometimes do as being the service designer or being the consultant, really applying our own expertise to find the right pattern patterns and then making them as a suggestion or advice to the client. But I, I think the main difference here as well is just inviting them into the chaos and, and really doing the, 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 uh, synthesizing, uh, or the analysis with um, uh, with the clients, um, but that got me wondering um, about a yeah. I was I was just wondering. We were, we were talking about these tools and methods that were very very helpful, but I'm also interested interested in did you have a th a tool or a method that you tried and then you find out like ah oh, this doesn't really work, or in theory it's it's nice to do for let's say personas, but in the reality. We were not going to do it because for X, Y, Z, it doesn't really work. Do you have an example of that? I think, you know, you actually called in the one that, that for me is the most top of mind, which is the limitations of personas. And I think we are at a point as a field right now where if we really want to embrace the idea of intersectionality and the notion that people are more than one thing and occupy more than one role, that tool is one of the most dangerous and one of the ones that we now as a, as a company really only use on the front end to surface assumptions. And we basically give it a disclaimer every time now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, Sid, I, see, I saw you give me a thumbs up. Tell me more from your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, I, 
I'm not sure of any from this particular project, but I think there's always tools that come up where you're like, oh, actually this one didn't land as well as I thought it was going to, but it works fantastic in another project with another group of people. I think that's quite normal. So it just, you know, goes back to the idea that as a field, like we're not just the tools. There's a whole bunch of service design practice that is about you know, reading a room and understanding the complexities of the different people and the relationships in that room and building the relationships so you can pivot when something's not working that are, you know, the tools is where a lot of us start mm-hmm. <laughs> in in this practice. You learn how to do a sort of sun blueprint and, and, you know, you start your your love affair with the practice. <laughs> but as, as time goes on, um, you know, you recognize that actually stewarding the relationships working through the different challenges with the help of tools or not is actually mm-hmm. a lot of what it's about. Yeah. And yeah, I totally oh, agree. Okay. I, I was just thinking about, um, um, uh, sometimes we also give training, uh, and, and for me as well, personas is something that's always a little bit too abstract or too one dimensional, uh, to really get through, the uh the the meaning of it um so um yeah that's super interesting how um from the assessment as well and the coaching and the training you you guys have done uh, within the project i think you it's it's a challenge as well right to um from an educational point of view also be very flexible towards the tools and templates you're using while assessing uh yeah christopher yeah i you know now that we're talking about it i actually think that this project questioned almost all the core tools of service design. Um, even, you know, we're finding a lot of a lot of our clients. So we work in a lot of complex and cross, cross-sectoral kind of work, uh, you know, work in health, work in the social services, work in government. And I have yet to make a service blueprint that's actually like, in, that is the final deliverable. Yeah. It's always a process <laughs> one um, because you know, the healthy systems actually are not linear. They have multi-layered loops. They have multiple entry points. And, um, you know, I think that's been really interesting to know how long to hold on to a tool and when to say, actually, now we need to step into the world of business modeling or we need to step into the world of um, HR and people empowerment or we need to step into the world of strategic foresight or something like that. And to kind of hold those tools lightly because, you know, again, they have they they were not able to make a service blueprint that works for all of their that that's like one clean line. And I think that's the other risk is that we end up in this kind of quality improvement mindset where we're trimming things down to a minimum viable stream. And for an organization that might that that is the housing provider of last resort, they are like they're the at the end of the line. That means they're going to get the most complex cases. And so the most complex cases need the most generous, caring net to catch. And so it's more about nets than it is about paths. What I love about yeah. and I think Sorry. Sydney, oh, go. No, I just wanted to jump in and say, you know, I think there's also a hugely different context of using a tool with like an internal design team or with a group of people who are used to working in this way versus with a group of people who are just learning it for the first time, that's when, you know, something like personas can be really useful to a design team as a starting point and as a as a place to kind of keep the user in mind if 
everyone there is experienced enough to understand that this is only goes so far and only has so much representation. But I know I've, whenever I've used them with clients, like it gets, they get really tied to mm-hmm. them and really stuck to them and really hard for them to see anything beyond the personas um, and don't see them as like a midpoint in a journey, but, but as like a final thing. And that's, you know, true of many, many service design tools. So we also have to remember that not every tool is the right one to teach at, and it's not always, at every time. Um, the deliverable, the deliverable, as you said, it's hundred percent. What, what yeah. I love is uh, during this entire conversation, you've mentioned so many times the this little looping back to why you're doing something or or why something happened in a certain way. So this mindset that mm. you ingrained in your organization, I think, in your practice at J Five Design. Um, what I found interesting is, for example, the working out loud because you've coached clients. They probably. Well, I, I, I at least hope they mirror your behavior a little bit as well. So not only have they used uh, this synthesis exercise, but they've also picked up on, ah, oh, they're actually working out loud and all these little habits and um, yeah, and mindsets that you've applied during this project itself as well. So you've, you've mentioned already that you, you learned a lot from this project and applied in other projects. Um, are there other mindsets or behaviors that you now have like as a default practice at uh, J5 Design? So if someone new is coming into your organization, you're onboarding them with certain mindsets. I, I see Christopher nodding already. Yeah, well, we have a set of um, design principles. Working Out Loud is one of those principles that are actually part of our onboarding process. Um, and as the first thing anyone who starts at J5 does is spends their first three months and they, there's seven of them. They pick three to focus on and lean into and experiment with uh, during their first three months. And then uh, we check in with them about that progress. Um, But I think that that that's, you know, certainly not uh, all the mindsets and, and complexity of that is not limited to that set of materials. Um, But that is, one way that we try to infuse that and keep that sort of alive within the different folks in our organization. And, you know, just on that note, uh, as you were saying before, I do think that one of our values as an organization is that we're actually really fun to work with. (laughs) We're actually really refreshing to work with for our clients, or at least I hope we are. I I think we are. I think it's one of the things that, you you know, not actually written out Thanks. Uh, I think it's not, you know, written out, like, you're going to have a fun time, you're going to enjoy working with us. But that is the reality of, you know, people that come into a space where we're, we are open minded, and we're trying to work out loud, we're trying to co design with people, we're trying to design the experience of working together, whether it's like clay sharks, or whatever that looks like. And people don't get that in their day jobs a lot. So they you know, come in and they want to spend time with us and they want to work with us because it's different than what they're normally doing. And that's another value that we can bring. Christopher, do you have anything you want to add on top of that? <laughs> uh, yeah, like I, it's, it's making me, I'm appreciating the question because it lets us kind of try to think about where does the DNA from one project kind of find its way into others. And there's a, a really strong line between bringing more art, creativity, and storytelling into our practice, I think that comes from this one and from many of the other projects in the social impact lab that we run, 
Uh, so the coffee table book I mentioned, um, right, it's a series of black and white photos from our site visits, along with snippets of stories, like almost like verbatim, almost like they were little scripts from what people said, right? And it's, it's a very immersive piece, and it ends with a set of aspirations that the organization is trying to commit to, right? It's saying we want to, um, we, you know, we aspire to improve our services and our relationships and grow our, our capabilities and think about the future and prioritize um, prevention and support, and it's very human. We delivered it as a video. So it's a narrated video where voices spoke the stories that we heard while we are on site. Right after that, we've started to see in our projects, we now, um, we actually just ran a synthesis day where we had a client, we were working on a massive project around cancer prevention. We had done engagement with people in communities from across Alberta and recorded their voices during this engagement. And then we sat down with the client who were part researchers, part doctors, part health improvement people, and our design team. And we debriefed and sense made the research, but we did it as a series of podcasts. And then we cut those together into stories that have the actual voices. So not just like an actor reading the story, but the actual voices who had consented to giving us their stories. And then those artifacts of sense making from this like podcasting day became tools. And so there's like a direct line from RDHA into this other work, the stuff that's been happening with the Indigenous youth wellness work that Sid's been a part of, where storytelling, art, um, and the, the craft of kind of bringing experiences to life has really been a big part of it. And I think that's really exciting when one project can, can pollinate and, and help us even like price and shape our work in different ways. Yeah, allowing room to to get that creativity and get that storytelling time in there because it's it's an effort to produce a podcast and a coffee table book. I mean, it's 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 a it's a true deliverable that that's um, it requires some craft and some dedication. Eh? Yes, <laughs> but but also like question. to just to just to, but to also to just try it too, right? Like I think that there are ways yeah. where maybe. Maybe we like we we try a lot. I think in Sid, you talk about working out loud. Um, I wonder. There's almost this other principle that's emerging, which is like make everything count, or see the mm. value in everything you've done. Where it's like, you know, the photos might not be perfect, or the the audio might not be exact, but hey, let's throw some music under it and present it because we believe in it, and then it can be even more impactful than if we know went for that higher value thing and i think that's a risk in the design field is that sometimes we aim too high or we try to be too perfect mm. and we need it to be a little bit grittier yeah there's there's an effort to unlearn sometimes to the point of what is actually good enough for this point of the process and playing with those different levels of fidelity throughout um so yes, there is a hundred percent craft is involved in that and, and a high level. And then sometimes depending on where you are, maybe not like maybe it's just the act of actually recording the podcast versus the output of the podcast. That is what's the takeaway is. And I think that's maybe where the braveness for ourselves comes in a little bit, not to aim mm. for that perfection for that craft, but at least looking at what we've produced so far and trying to make the most of that and, and sharing that back to the clients yeah yeah often a harder thing to do than than to strive for the perfect output and i think for for us one of the why one of the whys for that is that when we don't aim it perfect it leaves more room for other people 
because, you know, how is a client going to feel like, you know, they might have an insight and you've shown up to all of these meetings with these perfectly formatted and framed and like, all, like you know, really high, high fidelity outputs and they have a hunch about something and that hunch is like written on a napkin. That napkin might be the most important thing in the room. And so we need to really like watch out for that perfectionism because it can push away the things that really matter. It creates an openness by showing them that it doesn't have to be perfect before they come with the idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Super. All right. I think that's a, a wonderful insight to end today's uh, episode. Um, I want to thank both of you again for, uh, for joining us this evening. Well, this morning for you. And uh, <laughs> I really look forward to meeting you in real life again. Um, so I'm going to check out the plane tickets. Mm -hmm. Maybe you can fly to Europe someday again <laughs> as well. All the time. <laughs> yeah, I that would sound. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, you're always welcome to uh, to join us here again for another conversation. But then physically in our uh, podcasting studio, of course. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, just we really want to thank you for uh, for making time and uh, being here and sharing these wonderful insights. Yeah, I wrote um, a lot of things down in my mind to uh, to uh, keep. Uh, as a key takeaway for uh, for today. So uh, thank you very much for uh, for tuning in. The two of you have a Thanks wonderful day. Thanks so much day. for having us. Yeah. <laughs> and um, we're, um, we're going to take all these insights and we're off to our sofas with them. <laughs> have a Sounds wonderful good. day. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah. <laughs>